Good morning. It's 8.06. You're listening to the KPCW Local News Hour. I'm Parker Malatesta, filling in for Roger Goldman on this Friday morning. He's feeling a bit, a bit ill, so wish him a swift recovery. Uh, on the line with me, I've got uh, meteorologist Nate Larson from the ABC4 Forecast Center. Nate, winds picking up here uh, early this morning. When can we expect the snow to hit with this incoming storm? Yeah, Parker, we've got uh, some big changes on the way. Most of it's going to arrive, though, Saturday afternoon, uh, especially for Park City. Uh, you're going to see some milder temperatures again today. Winds generally fairly sustained, 20, 25 miles per hour throughout the afternoon. Could have some gusts up to 40 miles per hour at times. But not a lot of moisture today, just a slight chance of some rain, snow, showers. Otherwise, tonight will be about 35, so still mild with south flow in place. And then we do have a significant cold front moving through on Saturday. In fact, a winter storm watch has been issued for Park City Saturday morning into late Sunday. <clears throat> expecting some heavy snowfall to move through as this front really picks up uh, into the afternoon. So I suspect sometime around 2 or 3 o'clock should be moving through the Park City area and it's going to have even stronger winds with it. In fact, wind gusts of up to 60 miles per hour are expected. So blowing and drifting snow is going to be a concern on top of new snowfall. Now within that winter storm watch, anticipations of anywhere from 8 to 16 inches of snow. I think Park City could be on the higher end of that for the Wasatch back uh, with snowfall into Sunday evening. So plan on uh, winter driving conditions throughout the uh, majority of the weekend. We won't have a lot of moisture, I think, early Saturday, but by Saturday, Saturday afternoon into Sunday evening should have uh, periods of some heavy snow. Uh, a lot of the moisture clears out Monday. Temperatures, of course, are going to be much colder behind the front. We'll have 38 for the high Saturday and then 28 for the high on Sunday. We're staying a little cooler on Monday as well with just 28 again for the high overnight lows in the teens. Uh, we should see fairly dry conditions Monday, Tuesday. Have potential for more wet weather, though, towards the middle of next week. Start to see chances of snow increasing again by late Wednesday into Thursday. So, uh, yeah, be ready for some if you have outdoor patio furniture, things like that, of course, it is winter, so you might not have much outside, but things that could get picked up, blown around with some of those strong wind gusts, need to make sure to batten those down garbage cans, those sorts of things. Definitely sounds a bit nasty. Uh, thanks, Nate, for the info. Have a good weekend. All right, now time to talk about what this new storm means for the backcountry. On the line with me, I've got Greg from the Utah Avalanche Center. Greg, what are we looking at for this weekend with the new snow? Yeah, good morning. Um, well, ahead of the new snow we're expecting this weekend, I don't think I need to tell anyone just how windy it is. Um, we've seen some really strong winds really beginning since yesterday afternoon. The, the good news is that there wasn't a whole lot of loose snow available for transport. So even though we had some windy conditions yesterday, we weren't seeing a whole lot of fresh wind slabs. Um, there was actually a party that was involved in a, a small avalanche in the Salt Lake Mountains in Days Fork. And what was interesting about this was it was a six-inch wind slab, but it was in steep terrain and uh, steep consequent, consequential terrain. So they had a really good write-up. I, I encourage people to look at it on the um, utahavalanchecenter.org website. Um, but yeah, going into today, tonight, and this weekend, just winds are going to be increasing. We, we may see a little bit of snow today. Um, I don't think it's going to be enough to change things, but any loose snow will be quickly blown into wind drifts. Um, if for people that are getting out today, I imagine they're going to be looking for wind sheltered terrain. It's going to be hard to come by. Um, I do think the upper elevations, winds, when they're this strong, they just are moving snow and scouring it. So it's pretty rare to get 
um, widespread wind drifts, but I think at mid-elevations, for those trying to find some wind shelter terrain, you could find um, more prominent wind drifts. So um, be, su be surprised, don't be surprised by finding some wind drifts and typically wind sheltered terrain. And then, yeah, going into the weekend, um, uh, strong winds overnight into Saturday, heavy snowfall. So we're going to be seeing a rising avalanche danger. Um, likely the danger will be, it's moderate today, likely will be considerable um, by Saturday, possibly even high later Saturday into Sunday. And yeah, you just heard the weather forecast. Um, looks active through the early part of the week, a little bit of a break, and then more snow Wednesday, Thursday. So, um, yeah, March is March is beginning. Uh, it's the snowiest month we get in the Wasatch, and it's certainly beginning um, uh, as it typically does. Yeah, a lot of snow. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Greg, for the information. Take care. Th thank, thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is Parker Malatesta. You're listening to the KPCW Local News Hour. Coming up, we'll have a pre-recorded interview I did with members of the University of Utah ski team. Then I'll be speaking with Megan Nielsen of Habitat for Humanity about their upcoming financial education course, She Means Business. We'll finish our hour with our monthly chat with Lauren Gustis, executive editor of the Salt Lake Tribune, who I'm sure will have a lot to talk about, given that today is the last day of the legislative session. Be right back. Time for some local news. Newly released dash cam footage shows the moments leading to a Wasatch County man's death after a sheriff's deputy attempted a traffic stop, pursued, and ultimately fatally shot him. KPCW's Connor Thomas reports. Donald Ball was an honorably discharged Marine and former Blackwater Guard. A deputy with the Summit County Sheriff's Office pursued him from Camas into Wasatch County, south of Woodland, and fatally shot him shortly after 12.30 a.m. November 9th. Ball had an active no-bail warrant for failing to complete court-ordered mental health treatment and not contacting probation officers. The newly released footage shows the chase and some of the confrontation between Ball and the deputy, whose name has not been released. The five-minute chase begins at 12.29 a.m. after the attempted traffic stop when the deputy turns on his lights and siren as Ball flees in a white Dodge pickup. Both vehicles appear to be moving at high rates of speed. After the deputy attempts a pit maneuver to spin out the truck, the chase continues from State Route 35 onto Bench Creek Road until Ball reaches a closed gate at Aspen Hollow Road. There, the deputy blocks in Ball's truck and both men get out. In the footage, the deputy shouts for Ball to put up his hands. Then Ball runs around his truck toward the driver's side of the deputy's car with a long object in his hand. Summit County Sheriff Frank Smith has described the object as a steel pipe between three and four feet in length with a cap on top. Off camera, the deputy fires 11 shots. He radios that shots have been fired and requests help. The shooting itself was not caught on camera, but you can hear it. We want to warn you, some listeners may find this audio disturbing. The 41-year-old died at the scene, according to the Wasatch County Sheriff's Office. On camera, two responding deputies briefly check Ball's truck before going to assist him and the other deputy. 
A search warrant indicates authorities had safety concerns about Ball's vehicle. Investigators say they found a can of beer in Ball's cup holder and a second metal pipe wedged between the driver's seat and center console. The Unified Police Bomb Squad inspected the truck before it was transported to Utah's Bureau of Forensic Sciences for processing, the warrant states. Earlier this year, the Utah Attorney General's office found the deputy's use of force was justified. The deputy was not charged and returned to work after being placed on routine administrative leave in November of last year. The full dash cam video is available at kpcw.org. The Summit County Sheriff's Office told KPCW the deputy was wearing a body cam, but there's no body cam footage of the incident. Dash cameras activate automatically, whereas deputies activate their body cams manually. Utah law requires officers to, quote, activate the body-worn camera prior to any law enforcement encounter or as soon as reasonably possible. The sheriff's office said the deputy did not have enough time to turn on his camera before the confrontation. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. This is going to be a little unorthodox. I was not uh, planning on hosting the show today, so there is a pre-recorded interview that I myself did earlier this week. Um, so I, I sat down with members of the University of Utah ski team ahead of the NCAA championships that are uh, happening next week in Steamboat, Colorado. So I am now going to toss it off to Parker in the past. This is KPCW reporter Parker Malatesta. I'm here with JJ Johnson, who is the head coach for the University of Utah ski team. I'm also joined by Sydney Palmer-Ledger who was raised in Park City and is now a star Nordic skier for the Utes. She has previously won a national title and is looking to end her senior year in a strong way at next week's NCAA championships. Utah is obviously leaving the Pac-12 this year, but from what I understand, the move to the, the Big 12 has no impact on skiing. So can, can you kind of just give some background on the unique structure of NCAA skiing? And Yeah, like for conferences, the Big Football conferences going to big 12 definitely doesn't change you know our, our whole athletics budget especially for skiing we have uh two conferences for skiing the rmisa rocky mountain intercollegiate ski association and the east has theirs as well so it's it's pretty unique and there's within that there's division one and two schools and as well so it's sort of a, a mixed bag in those two conferences so those will just keep going forward the same way I saw that, so Utah is one of five programs that earned the maximum of 12 spots for the competition next week. So how, how do those five schools earn those 12 spots? Is that through events throughout the season where you're earning points? Yeah, so there's each, uh, East and West both have 12 qualifier starts, and that's for Nordic and, and Alpine. And then the top um, 17 in each gender for, um, qualify the west and the east so throughout the season it's you know you have your 12 starts your best two results count and then from there the boards start getting filled out so essentially for for alpine you could even you have to do at least four starts but if you win two in slalom right you're going to be in even if you haven't even if you haven't finished the gs and and the same with the nordic disciplines too nordic it's unique uh we had a race like our one of our first college races it was four races for super tour but they uh, counted for college so three races there were like sprint and distance that counted so technically you could just do two events you could do like u.s nationals and another college race and technically make it if you did well obviously the headline going into it is you all have won five straight national titles i was hoping you could both kind of just speak to how, how do you 
use that energy to your advantage? I'm sure there's like obviously some pressure that comes with it, but how do you kind of work to keep that momentum going? Um, I think there's some pressure, but there usually is throughout the season. Um, so I kind of take it as like, just like any other race, um, like from like a Wasatch Citizen Series to like a World Cup, it's like the same mentality. You go out there, you push as hard as you can and you do your best. Um, I think the coaches will be stressed <laughs> and the athletes will as well, but I think just trying to like focus on like what's important and being there as a team and just doing the best as we can do yeah and i just to follow up on that like we work so well together as a full team even between alpine and nordic you know we try to do more events together and activities together and, and you know i think the reason we're successful is you know we try to just you know it's the old cliche we treat it the same there's obviously a lot of extra stuff but if we can just go out and, and do the same thing and then this year is such an opportunity because of pressure we can it's all in cu right they have a really good team they're hosting they have a ton of seniors right there's it's a it's a lot of pressure so and we still have a lot of newbies this year too so it'll be fun like some fresh people in there and you know the pressure is sort of shifted there we can come in and ski free instead of playing defense especially on alpine side yeah i mean trusting the training as well just we work hard all year round um and we go to different teams in the summer and just like, it's almost the end of the year. And so just, yeah, staying focused, staying relaxed. Um, and yeah, it's, it's gonna be fun. It's my last NCAAs. So I'm just in, enjoying the last little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, Sydney, I do wanna ask about World Cup. What have kind of been the high points for you uh, this NCAA season? Um, definitely, yeah, racing World Cups. I've had, uh, top 30. Um, so I raced in Canmore and then Minneapolis, and then I'm actually heading over to Falloon, um, for those world cups right after NCAAs. Um, but I also turned down a lot of world cup starts, um, because it's my last year of college. And so I just raced most, I think only, I only missed one competition or like one event for Nordic, uh, this college season. So just, yeah, I love being with the team, and it's going to be sad to say goodbye in a couple of months. Yeah, and some added pressure, or I don't mean to manifest the pressure, but I just, I, the one stat line that kind of blew me away was just that the women's Nordic, the, the Utah swept the women's Nordic events for three straight years in the finals. Um, what what kind of culture has been kind of a part of that team to achieve that? Um, I think there's definitely added pressure with, like, uh, like girls on our team just like winning but also I am also a two-time NCAA champion as a freshman and so there's a little bit of pressure to win <laughs> this year um, but our team is really strong and we work together and you know they come from Europe and um, we have Nina who's from Colorado and we all just go to world juniors and just are, we work hard as a group but we also like are driven ourselves um so we're just gonna try our best and you never know what happens you don't know if there's like drafting that plays a part or conditions um this last weekend <clears throat> i was like first and second and i was basically pulling the whole race and it was like super windy and so then i got super tired and then people like slung shot around into the finish um so yeah just 
doing whatever you can possible because you never know what's going to happen if you're going to crash um, or just tired or yeah how other people are going to feel yeah and i understand you have some park city roots how's how's that background kind of helped get you to where you are today yeah so i grew up in park city like 30 minutes where i live right now and then i also spent three years in sun valley idaho with the svscf uh, team. Um, so mostly just like I knew a lot of people, Leah Lang, who came to Utah. And originally I didn't think I wanted to come to Utah just because I live 30 minutes away and I wanted to try something new. But once I talked to Frederick and Miles, I kind of just, I couldn't say no. <laughs> and it was the best like opportunity that I've ever done. So yeah, I think just the accessibility, like only 15 minutes to skiing, um, your 30 minutes or less to the airport, um, a couple hour drive to like Sun Valley to three hours to Jackson, Montana. Like, yeah, I think Rimza is one of the hardest compared to the East, I would say. Um, but like racing with Colorado, you know, you're neck and neck with some people, but after the race, you're friends with them. And I travel a lot and train with them in the summer. So it's kind of fun to see all of us grow. And it's definitely gotten harder and more intense the past three years, I would say, with each team. Everyone's just striving to be better, working harder, training more to to get the team, <laughs> to, to get the NCAA championship from us. Yeah. Uh, Coach, are there any athletes you want to highlight um, on the men's Nordic side or also on the Alpine team? Yeah, I can let Sid talk a little bit more on the Nordic one, but for the... Uh, for the Alpine team, you know, we have uh, Mikkel Solbakken, who's who came over from Westminster. He's doing a graduate year. We just call him the Big Easy. He looks the exact same if he's skiing powder, ice, or anything, and and just so chill and steady that he's he's so consistent. Um, our guys team, we had six out of our seven guys podium this year, so it was a, a horribly awful decision a couple days ago. Um, but we just uh, it's just exciting to see them all pushing each other. Um, on women's side, we have Madison Hoffman returning. She was double champion last year. So she's been uh, off racing World Cup and in and out a little bit and qualified pretty high. So, um, and Kaya Norby, who was our slalom MVP for the year, who was coming off an injury last year. So it's cool to see her back. So super exciting team. Like, we've got a lot of a lot of firepower. Um, but yeah, like like that said, the level is is gotten so high. You know, it's... Yeah, higher in the NORAM level, you know, a little less depth, but the, the top end is so good. So, and uh, I think anyone besides Utah doesn't want Utah to win. So it, it's going to be fun. Yeah, we've been booed by uh, the MSU team <laughs> at a couple races when we podium. And there's, well, I've been on World Cups and uh, I think four people from Utah went over to World Juniors. Um, and then CU um, had two girls at World Cup and have gotten top 30s. So it's, yeah, it's, it's intense, and hopefully people in college stay and continue to do the four years and then continue to ski afterwards because we have a really strong group in the U.S. or in the West as well. Yeah, Coach, uh, do you know the best way if people wanted to just uh, stay updated on how the team's doing next week? Do you know the best venue for them to go? Um, on on NCAA.com, and then you go over to the skiing championship, you'll have the live feed. So they can watch it on video, live video. Back to what you said with the 
Nordic boys, it was really close. And I think it was pretty hard for the coaches to decide who they wanted to take. Um, when people went over to World Juniors, Tom started doing really well. And so I think it was tough to figure out like who's peaking at the moment. Um, and it's cool to see like Brian and Walker when they first came in um, when I was a sophomore um, and they're a freshman and just how much they've grown and gotten so much faster and made the US ski team. Um, and Zach, who's new this year, and just from the fall to now, just how much like how well he's competing. And it's awesome to have a new addition to the team. We appreciate you two taking the time to speak with us and uh, good luck in Colorado next week. I'm Parker Malatesta. I've been speaking with University of Utah ski team head coach JJ Johnson and Nordic skier Sydney Palmer Ledger. A bill enabling the Military Installation Development Authority to levy new taxes in its project area has passed both chambers of the Utah legislature. KBCW's Grace Dorfler reports it's now heading to Governor Spencer Cox's desk. The latest version of Senate Bill 169 passed both the Senate and the House Thursday. Now it is being prepared for the governor's final decision. The bill will permit NIDA to impose an accommodations tax and a resort community sales tax within its project areas, among other provisions. It's expected to affect areas in Wasatch County like the Deer Valley Resort expansion. It also tweaks the definition of military land to encompass land owned or leased by MIDA, as well as land held or used for the military's benefit. And it includes a way for MIDA to send part of its property tax revenue back to local school districts, such as Wasatch County School District. The bill has been amended to include new language about MIDA's relationship with the Utah Department of Transportation. If UDOT sells highway land within the project area to MIDA, the profits from that sale must go to MIDA, and MIDA must use that money for transportation or transit within the area. The bill is sponsored by Senator Jerry Stevenson, the vice chair of MIDA's board. Wasatch County Manager Dustin Graybaugh says he's comfortable with the legislation. Well, I think Wasatch County is interested in ensuring that we have a continued input and voice on the MIDA board. I think we feel like there is there's a lot of transparency, um, there's a lot of input, and a lot of dialogue. So of the things that are in the bill, we were previewed on it, we're aware of them, and um, MIDA did a good job at including us in the process. News in late December revealed Stevenson's campaign received $11,000 in donations over the past two years from Extel, the luxury developer responsible for the Deer Valley expansion, and its owner, Gary Barnett. Senate Bill 169 will now head to Governor Cox's desk for his signature or veto. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. Habitat for Humanity of Summit and Wasatch Counties is sponsoring a new program called She Means Business. Here to tell us about it is Megan Nielsen. She's the Administrative Services Manager for Habitat for Humanity of Summit and Wasatch Counties. So I, to start, uh, Megan, how long has this program been going on and, and what inspired you to put it together? Yes, so uh, thank you so much. This program has been going on since 2017 and we have fairly consistently held the course uh, two times a year since then. So typically hold a session in the spring and in the fall. And really what inspired us to uh, create this program was seeing a uh, need one, uh, you know, uh, lots of offerings for typical, uh, these same type of financial education courses are offered in the Valley. Not much that we could find here in the Wasatch back. And when we would meet with our homeowner applicants who wanted to enter into our homeownership program, we just kind of noticed that 
uh, a lot of people didn't weren't ever really exposed to some of these basic concepts like budgeting and what's on your credit report and your debt to income ratio and things like that. So as you're coming in and you need to qualify for an affordable mortgage, we really felt like uh, exposing them to uh, a multi Course, multi-session course to really build upon um, going through a budget, really learning uh, what you're spending, where your spending is going, what debts you have, pulling your credit report, taking a look at it, making sure it's correct, uh, just having that awareness, learning about the mortgage process, and um, also we cover affordable housing opportunities in that class as well. So that's really what inspired us and we saw that there was a, a extra need for women to do that. Um, women aren't often um, here in Utah and everywhere in the world uh, in charge of finances and some find themselves in places where they are in charge of their finances and just don't have a lot of knowledge behind it. Yeah, so when will the classes be held and, and who should attend? The classes will be held uh, starting March 13th and go for the next consecutive four Wednesdays from 6 to 8 p.m. It will be held at the Blair Education Center in Park City Hospital. And really anybody who is uh, maybe looking to expand their knowledge on their personal finances, uh, anybody who wants to start budgeting better, somebody who has never budgeted, anybody who is looking to make a purchase. If you're looking for home ownership, if you're looking to buy a car, something that takes credit, if you are um, just really wanting to uh, get more stable in your life, right? Uh, Habitat for Humanity, one of our pillars is self-reliance and stability and having uh, your head wrapped around your own personal finances is really important to that. So we have students from um, age 20 to age 60 come to our classes. So um, it's really open to anyone. Yeah, and I understand you have some instructors lined up for the courses who, who have who's agreed to come participate. Yes, so uh, Kathleen Barlow is a financial advisor, a longtime Park City resident. She's uh, remote now, but still joins us. Uh, she actually helped us create the class. So she's been a really fundamental uh, person in, in She Means Business over all these years. So she goes over investing. She goes over uh, what is your relationship with money? Where did you get your core messages about money? It's often from our parents and we don't um, often explore those and uh, Sometimes we have to do some unlearning about things that mm -hmm. have been taught to us uh, while we were growing up. We also have Nanette Bush. She is a uh, mortgage broker uh, here in the Wasatch back. She talks about the mortgage process. Uh, Shelly Barris, our executive director, comes in and talks about affordable housing. And we also have uh, Jamie Swarzenbach. She is a new addition to our team and um, just kind of getting involved in helping us um, on our committee. She's from American Express and also Lindsay Powers from America First Credit Union. She does a really good deep dive into credit, debt, what's on your credit report, tips to improve your credit and um, manage uh, debt load and things like that. So she's also been with us for many years. Yeah, it's touching on a lot of important 
financial pieces. How, how do you feel that this program kind of fits into Habitat's larger mission? Yeah, so like I said, our one of our big pillars is self-reliance and stability and uh, personal finances. If you don't have a, um, you know, finger on what is going on in your life. And I think now where every money is so electronic and sort of up in the cloud and ethereal, we don't always know exactly what's going through our Venmo, what's going, what we're buying on Amazon. Uh, we don't really pay attention, I think, as much as when we used to get paper bank statements, right, and really look at those and, and uh, balance a checkbook and things like that. So um, really being paying attention to that and being in tune with what is going on with your personal finances is super important for that uh, stability and like i said with our home ownership program so important that when you come to apply for our programs you really know uh where you're where you're at right there's not a surprise on your credit report you uh went and got a, a loan a car loan right and have a, a high car payment and you can really see how that could affect some of your other long-term goals um so really yeah that's self self-reliance and and stability yeah um so classes start wednesday march 13th yes. um it's still still room to Yes. apply and how, how would people go about yes there is in? still room to apply and they can uh, register at habitat-utah.org or send an email to programs at habitat-utah.org and sign up yeah in the case that you know someone is not free on wednesday evenings is, are there any services habitat provides or places you would point people for just gen generic financial literacy information? Yes, our instructors are always happy to connect with uh, the community. And so they can reach out to that same uh, email address, programs at habitat-utah.org, or uh, give us a call at 435-658-1400. And we can, um, we can help. And like I said, we hold this uh, class twice a year. We also hold other financial education courses throughout the year and have lots of resources we can point people to. Yeah, Megan. Uh, are there any other points you want to make or think? Um, just should? it's a fun class and it is uh, personal finance often is uh, a sensitive subject right and there can be a lot of judgment around it and so we really try to create a safe space uh, non-judgment uh, zone for people to come and just talk about where they're at and their experience so it's also free there's it's no cost for sessions uh, chock full of information uh, thankfully we have a lot of sponsors and community members who help us uh, make that happen and um, yeah just it's a fun class that builds uh, each class builds upon the other and um, it's important to come to all classes to get the full scope of what we're offering yeah well thank you for sharing more about it uh, we've been speaking with Megan Nielsen she's the administrative services manager uh, for Habitat for Humanity of Summit and Wasatch counties jumping into some news the Salt Lake City Committee for the Games officially filed its preferred host submission to the International Olympic Committee Thursday the preferred host submission provides an overview of a potential 2034 Winter Olympics in Utah, including site plans and financial information. More documents, including contracts for venues, lodging, and marketing will be submitted in late March. With the bid process now reaching the last steps, officials leading Salt Lake City's push to host the 2034 Games anticipate a final decision this summer. 
Members of the IOC's Future Host Commission are expected to visit Utah in April. From there, if all goes well, the executive board of the IOC would motion for an election to grant the Games. Salt Lake City is the only bid the IOC has officially recognized for 2034. Salt Lake City Committee for the Games President and CEO Fraser Bullock said the bid team would give a presentation to the entire IOC membership ahead of an election. Bullock said they anticipate a host election on the eve of the Paris Summer Games on July 24th, better known in Utah as Pioneer Day. We're excited for that. The IOC understood the importance of that and kind of moved us today to be able to do that. Utah Governor Spencer Cox thanked the committee for its work Thursday. This is a, a submission that will make the, the citizens of Utah proud. We are well represented and uh, we're, we're so excited uh, to, to hopefully be all together on Pioneer Day in, in Paris, um, signing the, uh, the, the agreement that makes it official uh, for, for Utah to be the host state and Salt Lake City to be the host city. So thanks to everyone who's been involved. Bullock said the committee will likely release more information about venues in the coming weeks. The IOC has identified the French Alps as the preferred host for the 2030 Games. Both the 2030 and 2034 Olympics are expected to be awarded in July. In other news, the Snyderville Basin Planning Commission just forwarded 14 new commercial condos near Quinn's Junction for approval. They're not residential condos, but instead blank slates for businesses. KBCW's Connor Thomas has more on that. There are already some commercial condos out there at the Park City Business Center on Old Highway 40 just outside of Quinn's Junction. They're used by everything from auto repair businesses to gyms to plumbers and more. There's a laser supply business out there and a wine storage facility. Some of the commercial condos have been purchased by individuals as quote-unquote man caves, places to store outdoor toys. What they're not used for, at least legally, is residential space. As Snyderville Basin Planning Commissioner Chris Conaby explained at the Tuesday meeting, condominium just means an ownership structure. It doesn't define the use. Basically, a good way to look at it is the outside shell and the roof of the building is owned by all the individual owners inside of it. The 14 condos the commission considered are for businesses. It gave a positive recommendation to County Manager Shane Scott, who has the final say. The condo's future owners may need to return to the commission to get approval for certain uses, too. The condo application also included 70 parking spots, which got a positive recommendation as well. Steve Stanton, who runs 30-minute tire out of an existing commercial condo unit, said it could help take the pressure off of the rest of the business center's parking. Because all of my people are just, you know, completely livid down there about trying to manage that. The commission debated how much parking was needed and approved the 70 spots requested. That's because the buyer determines how the condo is used. Connor Thomas, KPCW News. And the Park City Police Department is asking for the public's help after a coat worth thousands was stolen from a store on Main Street. A Russian sable fur coat priced at $80,000 was stolen from Sitka Fur Gallery Tuesday at the center of Main Street. The business is offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest and the return of the coat. Detectives are asking for help identifying two people recorded on the store's cameras. The pictures can be seen online at kpcw.org. Anyone with information about the crime is asked to contact Park City Police Dispatch at 435-615-5500. And I'm now joined by Lauren Gustis, editor, executive editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. Lauren, today marks the last day of the legislative session. 
Uh, what are some of the more significant stories arising uh, that have been covered by the Tribune? Good morning, Parker. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I think we're happy that today is Friday, March 1st, the last day of the session. Lawmakers introduced more than 900 bills and resolutions. Um, and that's record. Each year they seem to set a record. They've done it again this year. Uh, I would say that we covered, uh, and many others did as well, a bunch of the culture war bills at the top of the session. So um, that would be an anti-DEI bill and a bathroom bill that we focused on. So um, listeners may be familiar with those bills as, as Roger and I had talked through them at the end of last month. As the session proceeded, we started to see uh, more legislation around a couple of baseball stadiums, um, which are both uh, proposed for, uh, excuse me, a couple of uh, pro sports stadiums, an NFL stadium and a baseball stadium that are proposed for Salt Lake City. Talks more about education funding, specifically vouchers, school vouchers. Can spend a little bit more time on that. Um, and also just looked at the budget on the whole. You know, one of the principal responsibilities of the legislature is to balance the budget. They will vote on the budget today. It'll be one of the final things they do before they break, before this 45-day session is over. Uh, and the budget will total just over $28 billion. Notable for what's in there, absolutely, but also for what's not. And specifically, um, what we're seeing is there's just not a lot of support, not as much support as folks wanted for homelessness issues. Homelessness, uh, I would say more so than housing, um, got short shrift in this year's budget. Uh, and, and there's some frustration as the session comes to a close on behalf of some that we just didn't do enough there. Yeah, I did want to dive a bit into the, the sports bills because... You know, we have no, there's no set guarantee that we're getting an NHL team or an MLB yep. team, but it appears, you know, that lawmakers have essentially done what they can to set up this building, this new stadium in Fair Park or revitalizing the Delta Center um, mm -hmm. for a hockey team. You know, what, what did we see to, to pay for those bills? Because I understand the hotel tax that a lot of people have been watching up here ha was pooled. Yep, you're absolutely right. You know, there's no guarantee that Utah gets either an MLB or an NHL team. But gosh, we are like waving our arms <laughs> as uh, as strongly and as enthusiastically as we can, I feel like, with both of these bills, which um, are essentially signals. Right now, there's no real money associated with them, right? In that until we get a team, you know, nothing will happen in terms of impacts to taxpayers, right? And, and there's, you know, still years um, before we'll know if we'll get an MLB team and it looks like it could be sooner for NHL, but there's still a great deal of uncertainty for both. So just in terms of context, right, we're not going to see any changes to how we're taxed this year. It's likely we don't see any changes next year, right? Not until we know we have a team will we start to see any changes. Um, but, and yes, um, there will be, there are proposals to, to, introduce um taxes that would pay for both stadiums the um the hotel tax is gone there is a tax for the baseball stadium on rental cars uh, but it won't take a effect until utah got a major league baseball team and then it would only generate about six million a year that's a far cry from the 900 million that the state wants to bond for the stadium right so They've still got, uh, I would say, a fairly sizable gap to close with respect to how they continue to find support to repay those bonds. They're saying that they'll do it with taxes from the district, right? Um, and, and they would be paid back over time, right? But the district is in Salt Lake City. So folks in Park City need not worry. 
about funding um, that stadium. And similarly, there was a lot of pushback from rurals on uh, on funding the uh, hockey stadium. And so there's a proposed citywide tax of a half a percentage point to build that hockey arena. Uh, and, and again, you know, that's a, about a $1 billion public price tag. So between the two, uh, spending, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion is what lawmakers are proposing on these stadiums should uh, Utah be in receipt of either team or both. Yeah. Um, going back to the school voucher stuff that you mentioned, um, that was kind of, you know, an action of last year's legislative session. Um, I, I saw the trip story that that was recently launched, but did, did see some hiccups. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the website, so this was a big deal last year, right? Um, and if you recall, lawmakers linked uh, increases in teacher pay to the voucher bill, right? And so they kind of put them together uh, to, to build support, in essence, for the voucher bill. And the voucher uh, bill last year offered $8,000 to a family per student for essentially I'll call it, um, you know, alternative education. It could be private school, it could be homeschool, you name it. Charter school, I believe, although don't quote me. Um, and uh, and so that was passed, but it took some time for the state to get up and running, right? And so it did so earlier this week, launched the website where families can apply. $40 million was allocated, which would have um, uh, seen up to 5,000 families benefit from the program. Um, and in, you know, the first 15 minutes of the site being live, it crashed. Once it was back online, uh, 500 people applied within, I think, the first 30 minutes. So there's interest, right? There's tremendous interest in the program. And so this session, lawmakers extended how much money is in that pot for this year by another $40 million. They also laid out money uh, for 2025's program. Uh, and I believe they've requested, and again, the budget is not yet final, but they've requested $108 million for next year's voucher program. So uh, the commitment to vouchers remains despite, you know, dissatisfaction from educators and those who believe that uh, it's an outsized commitment given that you know, the state of Utah gives public schools 4K per student right now, uh, and we're giving, you know, 8K uh, per family in vouchers. Yeah, definitely doubling down there. Um, one of the pieces from the trip that I really enjoyed this week, um, I believe it was by Megan Banta, but please correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of looking into this notion of is Utah becoming more purple? Is it becoming leaning more democratic with the population growth? Um, that is occurring across the state. Um, what, what did the reporter find kind of looking into election stats of, is there kind of this blue wave that's coming or is that just getting kind of lost in a few numbers? Yeah, thanks. So Megan's a data reporter. Um, and, and I want to, you know, <laughs> how do I want to say this? I want to be careful and make sure I get her data right, you know, as we have a conversation about the story. But so she wanted to look and see at what was happening county by county. And you're up in Summit County, right? Um, and, and we're down here in Salt Lake County. And those counties will vote blue um, in, you know, countywide or citywide elections on a fairly regular basis. Um, and even for uh, representatives who serve at the statewide level, as you as you likely know, we have no um, Democrats in um, 
office at the federal level here in Utah. But Megan looked at Utah State uh, and more specifically the Cache Valley slash the Logan area where some interesting things are happening. Um, and that's it principally in part because uh, people are moving to the Cache Valley to work at Utah State University or, you know, um, companies or industry associated with it. Um, and then there are also, she noted, a large number of independents there who are starting to lean blue instead of red. Now, uh, is is there going to be a blue wave overtaking Utah next year? Absolutely not. Uh, even the Democrats she spoke with said, it's going to take a few election cycles of dedicated work before we flip, quote unquote, Cache County. So um, there are changes in the uh, percentages of support for Republican candidates in any number of counties, including in Cache County, and that that percentage is decreasing. Uh, but Republicans still have um, the upper hand and still will continue to have, um, you know, occupy that dominant position here in Utah, even as we're starting to see pockets of uh, change, such as up in Cache Valley, and even as the percentage of support for Democrats, excuse me, for Republicans continues to to decrease. They've still got such a strong um, position here in the state that that we're not going to see, you know, fundamental change uh, as as one expert that she spoke with said for for at least a couple of elections, if not more. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting. I know she looked at, uh, I believe it was like Carbon County and some other mm -hmm. southern Utah counties that comparing kind of the, I believe it was the George Bush like 2000 election with the Trump. 2020 election and, and some counties that have actually, you know, grown much more red. You're absolutely right, Parker. Beaver, Carbon and Juab County are seeing, you know, increased support for the Republican Party in terms of those percentages going up. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, Lauren, I kind of wanted to end. I saw the op-ed that you wrote yesterday, kind of just speaking to state lawmakers and transparency and was Wondering if you could kind of give our listeners kind of a brief of, of what you talked about in that piece. Gosh, I will try. Um, so, you know, this session has been extraordinary um, as you as one takes a look as we have at um, how open our government is. So this week, uh, Cox signed a bill that will make uh, lawmakers work calendars private. There are very few places in the country where public officials calendars are not available to the public for inspection. And that's because, um, you know, public officials work for the public and we should have a sense of where they are and what they're doing, right? So uh, that was a particularly damaging bill. Uh, taxpayers uh, moving forward will pay for private companies to scrape lawmakers' public information from the web. Um, and there are all kinds of other, I would say, like secretive um, advancements in uh, issue-specific bills um, that presented this year, including you know, um, the formation of a new water entity that will be uh, entirely private. We won't know um, how much this entity is paying for water that it wants to buy from other uh, states and, and use here in Utah uh, and, uh, and what that cost would be to taxpayers. So I essentially just wrote about how um, concerning this is, how I hope that it is concerning to others, right? We know that democracy takes work. It's not a given. Uh, and... Um, and we're doing that work every day as our your folks, as our you, Parker, as we look at, you know, how we hold public officials to account, how we help uh, communities understand what public officials are and aren't doing on their behalves. 
And when these kind of measures are introduced and when we have more secrecy around what lawmakers are doing, we lose, you know, trust, trust decreases. And, and the last thing that we need, in my opinion, is less trust uh, among folks in our communities. So I uh, wrote to uh, Mike Schultz, our Speaker of the House, after he uh, shared some misinformation with respect to Tribune reporting, attacked a couple of our reporters this session, didn't hear back from him, and so decided to write myself and also share the letter that I wrote with him with readers yesterday. And the, the I don't know, his response has been tremendous, a lot of support, a lot of people um, uh, are grateful for local news and information, and, and that's heartening. That's wonderful to see. Yeah, Lauren, um, about out of time, are there any other things you want to mention or think people should check out on the TRIBS website? Uh, well, follow us tomorrow for a full wrap-up of what happens late uh, in, the, uh, in the last day of the session tonight. Thanks, Parker. Leadership Park City's annual forum returns in March and will focus on the future of mountain towns. In his last year as program director for Leadership Park City, Miles Rademan will moderate a panel at the library Monday, March 18th. For the forum, Rademan has selected five representatives from Park City and sister communities. They've all lived the life in these resort communities and been involved, totally involved in these communities. And I'll be asking them questions about where they came from, how they saw their communities evolve, how they're dealing with some of their issues. The panel will include journalist and author Paul Anderson of Aspen, Park City Lodging owner Rhonda Sedaris, and Jonathan Schechter of the Jackson Town Council. Rademan said he wants to see how other towns are tackling Park City's same problems. Traffic, child care, affordable housing, you know, divisiveness in the government, how they're dealing with them, and whether they are optimistic about the futures of their communities. Hopefully they can give us some sense of optimism, but I'm not sure they're all optimistic. That, that'll be interesting for me to elicit from them, and of course we'll have plenty of time for community um, input or questions and answers. The event's scheduled to run from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Santee Auditorium. Once again, that's Monday, March uh, 18th. I'm Parker Malatesta filling in for Roger Goldman today on the KPCW Local News Hour. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to KPCW Park City at 91.7 and 88.1 FM in Summit County, 91.9 FM in Wasatch County.